Due to technical difficulties, David Ehrlich had to be cut from the first segment of this quarter quill. I know you're so disappointed, but don't worry. He is on the rest of the quarter quill despite some audio issues. So here we go. Episode 125. Thanks for listening. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 125. It's Tuesday, June 28th, 2016. And as you listen to this, I may or may not have a child. <laughs> <laughs> really unknowable at this point. Uh, we are recording this. Well, you'll uh, definitely know when you have it. I will know when I have it. But as we record this, it is un- is unclear. I mean, as as children are wont to do, they show up when they feel like it. So they could come on their due date or they could come. They could come halfway many, through this podcast. Could come halfway through this podcast. We really, uh, yeah, the suspense in this podcast should be killing you. Will <laughs> I go into labor while I'm recording Oh, my this God. We would still uh, have to deliver the episode. So I And your do, baby. Yeah, you guys will deliver the baby via Skype. As a team. Breathe, breathe. I feel like I'm pretty sure the hospital is going to get me there, but I'll let you know. Okay, if I fair. Uh, I did really like that our, our quarter quell coincided with the, uh, basically with the due date of this baby because it, we've always used these quarter quells to talk about what's going on in our lives. And uh, there's a big thing going on in my life, which is uh, really exciting. But, you know, he doesn't do anything yet or have any wants or desires as far as I can tell. So what else am I supposed to talk about? You Well... What talk about what our baby inspired topic is? Actually, you should yeah. talk about what being pregnant is like. That's what I demanded before. Wait, the hang podcast. on. I want to talk about the topic. <laughs> I feel like we're burying the lead. Otherwise, so Fair, fine, fine. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, I have been thinking, and I've you know I've talked to David, and uh, you know, I think all of you guys about this at some point about like the pop culture that you pass on to your children, and like what you want your kid to watch. And obviously, after you have a baby, it's a while before they you know do anything other than kind of stare up into space. So it'll be a couple of years before I'm saying, "Hey, kid, I want you to watch this thing that I loved as a kid," or mm. "I want you to watch this TV show and not that TV show." But um, okay, so yeah, I, I think that all of us kind of imagine like what kind of stuff we want to show our kids and while well, knowing that we'll get stuck watching uh I know, like I, I keep on to say spongebob because that's my reference for a kid's program but that's so outdated at this point like i don't know what kids are watching these days but a lot of people confront this topic too like i feel yeah. like all of our lives we've heard about people you know people older than us having kids and figuring out what that first movie is going to be or what the rest are going to be when do you show a kid this movie something rated mm-hmm. r or something uh edgy or something foreign when do you go yeah there? like when is your kid ready to see back to the future 2 when is your kid ready to see ghostbusters when you know when the first movie you see is almost definitely going to be whatever disney or pixar has out the year your kid is four so you don't have a ton of control over that I uh, I plan to go to the Nighthawk with uh with this infant and see whatever they're playing and maybe it'll be the lobster so we'll see uh and then tell tell this child that story. Um so in this episode we're going to talk about the movie or pick a movie from our lives that we want to pass on to our children to future generations in general like what we want to pass on about ourselves or about pop culture via this particular film that can demonstrate something to another generation that nothing else can. Does that sound like a That's a topic. summary. Yeah. That's yeah. a hearty that's, topic. But we could talk about that for about an hour. Yeah. Let's do it's it. It's not just uh, me rambling about uh, having a kid, which, you know, we'll get I'm going to do. We could talk about that for about an hour, too. Well, what I think is going to be hilarious is to listen to this after I've had a child and be like, ha, you thought you had any control over what this kid would watch. 
you're trapped <laughs> in a frozen hellscape yeah having a boy so shout out to your 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 son who is listening to this in the future oh uh, my god he found it in the memory box that you he will found keep. it in the game grid <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you made it here, son. We've got a mythology. It's, it's uh, working out. Nah, so I, yeah. so I, 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 we, decided, we decided that I will go first. And then, uh, uh, Dave, how did you describe the order that we're going to go in? Uh, we're going to go in the order most likely to have children uh, <laughs> based on not having children out of wedlock. <laughs> because that, that's, that's against the rules next. in this version. And then David, and then Dave may or may not get married. Who knows? We'll, we'll get to my whole thing at the very end. Ooh, Surprise. exciting. So here we go. Uh, but, yeah. Quarter quell. Peeking in the pool hall window after school. You got trouble, folks, right here in River City. Trouble with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. Now, I know all you folks are the right kind of parents. I'm going to be perfectly frank. Would you like to know what kind of conversation goes on while they're loafing around that hall? They have a trying out Bebo. So I don't know if any of you watched the movie that I chose or have ever seen the movie that I chose. The movie that I chose to talk about is The Music Man, which is a uh, old school movie musical that uh, is uh, much older than any of us and kind of old fashioned in a way that... Uh, musicals are that I think turns a lot of people off. Although you know, it's not it super old, right? It's only 1962. 1962, yeah. From, I mean, from the era in which uh, you know Hollywood is making a ton of big Technicolor musicals. I mean, it's not as old as like you know Busby Berkeley musicals, and probably it doesn't have the cachet of those either. Like, it's right. not really old enough to be hip. Like, it's very square, and it's a very square musical. But it's but one of that, the. Yeah, uh, that's what makes it good to pass on. Well, or well, it, was, so, it was passed on to me from my parents. So. Oh, was it really? So you it had was. Music? Ah, all right. I want to hear this. No but... wonder you're such a con artist. <laughs> Dave's dream is to get an Iowa town to follow his every move. <laughs> or, or I could uh, sell them my monorail through song. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first exposure. The Simpsons episode, I saw that before I actually saw the music, man. I, that's probably oh, a really? lot of things in pop culture. I absorbed the Simpsons reference before the actual Movie I I saw that Marge versus the Monorail is the name of that episode. Right. I saw mm-hmm. that Simpsons episode for the first time like two years ago, maybe, and wow. I was delighted by it because I grew up on the Music Man because my grandmother loved it, and then my mom passed it on to me. It was one of the I don't know if we had it on VHS. I guess we must have, and would watch it at home or at my grandmother's house and kind of sing the songs. There was a, a community production of it when I was like six or so that my mom was in playing Mrs. Peru, who was a Marion's mother who teaches oh, wow. piano. You've seen yeah. your mother in this musical. Of course it has I have significance. Seen, yeah, exactly. No, and, <laughs> and so my mom, my grandmother and my mom both really loved a lot of these old school musicals. My mom actually told me really recently about how my grandmother, I think, so she lived in London when my grandfather was in the military right after World War II and I think saw My Fair Lady on the West End and listened to the cast recording ever since and like that would be what she did when she cleaned oh the God. house, just listen to these Broadway cast Was that recordings. Julie Andrews? Was she in the original... West End because she didn't get cast obviously in the movie. That's true. I don't know. I I, I, I haven't honestly even fact checked these days or even know if my grandmother (laughs) managed to see it. Your grandmother's full of shit. Yeah. So, but she loved the she loved My Fair Lady all the same, and then my uh, my mom loved musicals too, and so we watched uh, the Music Man was on a uh, was on rotation as was Oklahoma. I uh, famously uh, with my siblings would we would play Oklahoma. Which is an insane thing for children of the 90s to do, like to pretend to be characters in an old movie musical. <laughs> uh, we also watched The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which stars Debbie Reynolds and is a very strange musical movie. And 
What I like about The Music Man is, A, that it's delightful. It's a musical. It's got great songs in it. Like, if you think that Hamilton is the first time that, like, rap and musicals have ever come together, like, go watch the number on the train at the very beginning of The Music Man. And, I mean, there are a bunch of white guys, and it's before rap was invented, but it's so rhythmic. Like, it's the reason that rap and musical theater mesh so well together. That is the weirdest scene. Like it's Oh, it's such a great scene, though. It's so yeah. bizarre. I, I mean, they all look exactly the same. Yeah, the that's frightening, the, they're all these traveling salesmen. And they're obviously, they're not on a real train. They're, it's back uh, yes. project, I mean, rear yeah, projection. This, is, this, is all, this whole movie is shot on a back lot. Yeah, and it's just like, it's so dreamlike. I, I was tripping my ass off watching that. Really? But yeah, and then it like gets, the, this is the origin of whatever whatever feeling that you're getting. <laughs> like, it's this, these movies are the origin of that weird, like... This isn't real, like, yeah. or at least that was how it was for me. Is watching movie musicals is like how I figured out my standards of what like big studio filmmaking looked hmm. like. Because I wasn't watching like the big dramas or like any of the wacky comedies. It was definitely like big studio musicals was just a whole period of filmmaking. I think for me, yeah, and it's, stuff like it's, this is great. It's interesting how movies teach you what is possible in a movie. Uh, and if you grow up watching these musicals, like you just have the sense of people breaking into song, and it like never occurs to you that. It wouldn't happen in real life, but it happens in movies, as do all kinds of crazy things that you've never seen. And I like the, you know, the way the music band is like integrated into this town. Like it's not, it's not like a Busby Berkeley musical where you have to like be on stage and have an excuse for these songs to happen. They're just happening, which well, is true of a lot of music. Can you can you set up a little about what the music band oh, is about? Oh sure. If people have not seen this uh, seen this movie. Yeah, it's about uh, this guy named Harold Hill who uh, passes himself off as a traveling salesman but is basically a con artist. And he arrives in this uh, Iowa town called River City. I think it's set in like 1910 or so. Like it's a slightly Victorian era. Um, and he basically is going to tell them that he's going to start a boys band, take all their money, and then skip town. He was uh, uh, he was the real Lou Pearlman of his day. Oh, like the uh, the creator of the Backstreet Boys? Yeah, yeah that was yeah, his but name, let, right? let's cre- <laughs> Less creepy, I'd say, but you know. Maybe not entirely uncreepy. Uh, so he, you know, he comes and he gets everyone excited about the idea of a boys band. In the meantime, you know, <laughs> teaches people how, like, how to be musicians. Like he uh, forms a barbershop quartet, which patches I felt like you might appreciate. Oh, a, very uh, much so. Quartet. <laughs> um, really brought and, me back to my days in Spepsqua, the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Singing in America. Of course. Well, that's the next quarter <laughs> quote we're going to have. <laughs> Just talking about that. <laughs> Um, and then he uh, falls in love with Marion the librarian and uh, and uh, learns to embrace the town and the town learns to embrace him. It's, uh, you know, not a super complicated plot, but it has great songs in the middle of it. And, you know, it's about, uh, you know, small town like uh, inclusivity and, you know, being unwelcome to strangers and kind of people learning how to open themselves up a little bit, which is, you know, I don't think any of this is something that isn't in, it, isn't in any other movie, but I think I like it best in The Music Man. Yeah, it's not completely. It's not original in any way, and yet the packaging is so delightful. It's weird yeah. because the movie is really, really long. It's 151 minutes, and it definitely well, yeah. kind of just Musicals rambles that along. Era, that was like the whole, you know, Sound of Music era of the musical, where they would just make these movies huge and super long, so it like earned your money to go, right. you know, well, spend although, the whole afternoon there. I assume that's just adapting the stage musical basically one for one right they're not this is not the abridged music man this is the full show i mean there's definitely even a moment and i don't know if it had an intermission when it played in theaters i assume it did it my my version that i recently rewatched did not have like an intermission moment but there's certainly a downbeat and right smack dab in the middle of the movie that go get yeah i saw it i saw it on broadway like 10 years ago no longer than that when uh eric mccormick star of will and grace was in it 
Um, and <laughs> I don't remember it being that different from the, the movie that I knew. So presumably it is pretty much the musical itself. But you know what? Like, why a bridge musical? Like, you know, Hairspray became a movie and it was like basically the same as the musical Hairspray. Like, Les Mis is probably the evidence for why you might abridge a, mu- uh, a musical. Did they abridge Les Mis? No, definitely not. No, no. no yeah, they, they did really well. So. They had to add to yeah. get an yeah. Oscar nomination. <laughs> they had that whole song, yeah. And- <laughs> so, Katie, my question to you is Music Man is a very traditional musical, uh, traditional values of these characters and watching it you know contextualized in 2016 it might be a little odd like it might be is this the kind of thing you want a kid to to glean from and and hmm. learn and you know harold hill is a dick i mean he's <laughs> Total charming dick. robert preston i was reading up on the movie i didn't re- robert preston was in the original broadway cast of the of the musical and they didn't want him for the movie uh the studio wanted frank sinatra and, ah, and then they ah, fought. That would be really different with Frank Sinatra. Oh my God! Yeah, that would be uh, probably a little. S- It'd be really sinister. Yeah, <laughs> like, it would be his scummy. like sexual energy would kind of overwhelm the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> Robert Preston plays it pretty asexual, despite falling in love with uh, the librarian Marion. Um, but yeah, so he's not a good person, and I don't think he really redeems himself at any point. I mean, he certainly falls in love, but the end of it is basically like, no, the 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 positive energy that you've given by. Uh, do this con, this has enlivened the town, and that's enough. Like, they're not a good yeah. band. They don't learn to play music. They just no. kind of pretend like shit sounds great. Um, and maybe that did lead to the future of boy bands. And uh, sorry, One Direction. Or like the American Donald Trump hucksters. Wow. Oh there oh we go. God. <laughs> all right, if my child is growing up in Trump's America, this may all be irrelevant. <laughs> we never learn to celebrate con artists. It's the old-fashionedness of this movie that really sticks with me, because I think that any kids that we have will grow up in a world full of really progressive entertainment for them. I think children's entertainment has done a really good job of promoting the kind of values that we actually want to see in our kids, about you know embracing yeah. people and embracing different kinds of people and sticking up for yourself and feminist ideas and gay rights ideas. There's all kinds of stuff in that. But I think that if you just have your kids surrounded by that, they don't get a sense of what the world is and has been and, you know, what you, their parents grew up with or their grandparents grew up with. And I like the idea of, of having something old fashioned to throw into that mix, like something that's like, oh, here is what the world used to be like. And, you know, the Music Man is an idealized version of, you know, Victorian era Midwest, which is probably a really shitty place to live. Um, but it's also, you know, what movies used to be like and what entertainment used to be like and the values that used to come out of there. And, you know, maybe it's a risky gamble to like think that you can expose your kid to something that you don't entirely agree with and then tell them what to take away from it. But I'm really glad that I grew up with this and had, you know, having a sense of the world beyond like whatever the, the values of children's entertainment were when we were growing up. And I want to have a kind of balance in there with that that isn't like, you know, oh, we're watching Revenge of the Nerds, even though it's sexist. Like, there's something in the, the old-fashionedness of the music man and, you know, maybe the sexism that comes with it. Seems like a balance to me that you want to put into a kid's entertainment diet. What age are you, would you pinpoint is, like, the first music man exposure? Oh, man. I mean, I think, like, I, I, I've talked to uh, our friend Joanna Robinson a lot about, like, singing musical numbers to your kids, because this is something I remember very well from growing up. And my mom has written in my baby book that, like, I would sing songs from Oklahoma when I was little, when I started learning how to sing, because, like, she would be singing them to me. So I think with musicals especially, like, 
Musicals are great songs to sing to kids because they have simple melodies and they have stories and they're really fun to listen to. So, so and, you're, you know, you're going to be the mom. Them, you're going to be the mom who barges into her kid's room at like 7 a.m. going, 76 trombone. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Like what kid doesn't need to have someone sing to them? I'm like, you'll be swell. You'll be great. Even though like the meaning of that song in Gypsy is much different from the song itself. But, you know, grow up with it. Like have those songs. Like be... Have the American songbook in your head. And then at the age where you're ready to watch The Music Man, like, I think it took me years to figure out, you know, the plot or that, you know, maybe Marion the Librarian is kind of a creepy song because he's, like, following her around the library where she's trying to do her damn job. But that's part of it, too, like, piecing together what you were told in childhood and learning to think about it for yourself. Right. It's mostly an excuse to hear these songs and watch people dance. And then, like, if you pay attention to the nooks and crannies of the movie, you start understanding the the characterization of, of Harold Hill but really he's just dancing in a library in the scene and yeah, he, and, and, if, and this woman is singing into the moon like this is just lovely and then if your kid gets the chance to say you know why do the townspeople not like him and you get to tell him about you know why it's important to lie and own up to your mistakes and or it's important not to lie why it's important know, to lie so important to lie <laughs> taught by the rich family oh um, my god yeah like you know it can be a chance to teach them something or it can be a chance to like show them this incredible American art of the musical, which I love dearly and hope a kid of mine would love too. Yeah, it's definitely a lost art, the way they do this. It's uh, What's interesting, too, is how they kind of incorporate the stagecraft into this show, or into the movie, uh, not just through, you know, staging a dance and musical number in one room, um, but also I think during the Lita Rose Will I Ever Tell You number, they they have two spotlights and they're in two different sets and they've mm-hmm, melded those mm-hmm. pieces of film together the way you might cut from one section of a stage to another. Uh, and that's just well, like also, interesting on a craft level. It's also interesting when other ladies start singing uh, pick a little, talk a little and they, uh, you know, they cut between the feathers on the ladies' hats to these chickens. It's very ham handed, like not the most graceful way to do it, but you know, that's cinema right there about well, using it's the camera. It's blunt cinema. You, yeah, you, very you blunt. learn it. Like if you want to understand what a movie can do, if you want to be able to have that conversation with your kid, I mean, we care about it on that level. Uh, this is a great way to do it. It's forceful. It rem- reminds me of, um, Reminds me of oh god, what's the Wes Anderson movie? Uh, very, no, it's very storybook. Moonrise Kingdom. It's, it's something about that that the deliberate nature of its filmmaking uh, just leads to conversation, leads to wonder. It's exciting to just see how they incorporate all these elements and with blunt force. Yeah, yeah. And for me, like one of the best encapsulations of wonder in movies is a musical number. Like those are my, you know, those are the moments. Where I am watching a movie, I just feel like transported by it, like Singing in the Rain does this for me every time in a way that stage musicals can't do because of the way they use the camera. So, you know, if I can pass that sense of wonder along to a kid and, you know, for all I know, I'm going to have a kid who could not care less about musicals. Uh, But even my brother who grew up around all this stuff and doesn't really care about personally about musicals has fond memories of the music man in Oklahoma. So I think early indoctrination pays off. (laughs) That's going to be the lesson of the episode. <laughs> you know, that, that, we're going to repeat that all throughout. Um, so, yeah, I plan to uh, – I plan to. well, what song do you think I should sing to my kid really uh, – That's what really I'm wondering. Young? I mean, I think Till There Was You is a really great love song. Like, that's a uh, – you know, that's a classic one. What about the one where the little girl's playing piano? Will that encourage your future children to take oh, it God. up? And... I mean, I took piano lessons and never liked them, so, it didn't, well, so that didn't work on me. That's what's so interesting. You know, we have to think if a kid's watching this, they're probably really concentrating whenever a kid shows up. Too. Yeah, it's true. And little well, Ronnie Howard in this movie is kind of I an a-hole. I know. 
I love him in the way you don't like Ronnie Howard in this. No, I mean, he's just he's always frowning. He is. Well, he's he's so unhappy. Lisp. He's having a hard time with that lisp. That's true. Wells oh, Fargo Wagon is a really fun song. Wait, can we talk about the girl, the the one character? What is her line that she says? Egad or what? Is, well, she's constantly oh, saying something. Oh, Amaryllis. Yeah, is it yeah, Egads she... or <sighs> Egads? 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 <laughs> it's I I know what you mean, but I can't. I almost didn't make it, it to the end. That that was that was brutal. Oh yeah, was this the first time you'd ever seen it? It was the first time I'd ever seen it. I so what? my my childhood may, may have been saved if I had actually seen Music Man. Yeah. But, uh, I associate you with musicals so much. That's so surprising. I know. Yeah, this was just a well, blind spot. I may have. We seen, all have musical blind spots. It's hard. I mean, I've seen some of the big numbers just from you know on like YouTube or something, but I've never sat down and carved out the hundred fifty minutes needed to watch the Music Man. <laughs> it is a long. Um, yeah, that is. And I just, your efforts. I mean, Robert Preston is so good in the movie. I was yeah. I was shocked. I didn't realize Shirley Jones was in it. Uh, mm-hmm. From the Partridge family, and um, but yeah, I was really she taken by Robert Preston for some reason. He's just extremely charming. All the songs are in his range. He belts them. I don't know. It's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, one last thing: they at one point NBC talked about doing a live Music Man uh, TV musical. I don't know if it will ever happen, but uh, back when they announced it, I wanted Lin Manuel Miranda to do it. Still think he'd be great at it. So maybe that'll happen someday. 76 trombones. Mm-hmm. With 110 cornets. <laughs> Two minutes. What's that? Schleeman attack. Schleeman attack? What'd you learn that from? A book? No, my teacher taught me. Well, your teacher. Well, forget it. Play like you used to, from the gut. Get your pawns rolling on the queen side. Come and get it. Put it out. Josh is playing. He didn't teach you how to win. He taught you how not to lose. That's nothing to be proud of. You're playing not to lose, Josh. You've got to risk losing. You've got to risk everything. You've got to go to the edge of defeat. That's where you want to be, boy. On the edge of defeat. But. But what? Play. Never play the board. Always the man. You got to play the man playing the board. Play me. I'm your. So for my movie, I have picked 1993's Searching for Bobby Fischer. I don't know. This is. I don't know if this movie has a legacy. Does this movie have a legacy, or I is think this if, just a kind of splash of the pool? If you weren't, like, nine or ten years old when it came out, it might not linger for you at all. Yeah, I mean, I was in the pocket for that, and I hadn't seen it, but Java had. So she was like, oh, you it was." she was actually surprised that I hadn't seen I mean, it. So I think it does have some... some other I legacy. think for a chess kid who grew up in the 90s, this is sort of my rounders, you know? <laughs> Uh, I really want to hear you talk about being a chess kid. I, this isn't your segment. Well, I talk about, you know, I in the way that it's, it's a better chess movie, a significantly better chess movie than Rounders is a poker movie. But the way that people quote Rounders and the Oreo shit that John Malkovich does is the same way that I used to and probably still continue, even though I haven't played chess in a very, very long time, still find myself going like, I offer you a draw. <laughs> like, you know, uh, uh, anyway, great film. I'm excited that this movie begot Schindler's List, which came out just a few months later. Wait, Wait how, how did it begot Schindler's well, List? Well, this is directed by Stephen Zalian, who wrote Schindler's this, List. That is correct, but I'm not sure this was the reason he got Schindler's, <laughs> Schindler's List. List. <laughs> probably would have happened. Now for something a little different. Yeah. This is, this is <laughs> uh, well, so as, as David mentioned, this is the directorial debut of Stephen Zalian, a very famous... Uh, screenwriter schindler's list uh, before that he had uh, written awakenings i think that was his first pretty big movie but he'd go on to write mission impossible gangs of new york moneyball girl the dragon that too 
done a lot of things. This was his directorial debut. He's done two other movies, but I don't. Oh, he did the All the President's Men remake. That was. Uh, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. Um, and for people who don't know or haven't seen this film, it is about this child chess prodigy, Josh Whiteskin. Uh, the movie was adapted from his dad's book. His dad was a sports writer. Yes, because Searching for Bobby Fisher takes place in a fantasy world where sports journalists can afford and live in brownstone apartments around Washington Square. It was a, it was a different time. I don't know. In it the early 90s, time. that seems <laughs> possible. I was, I, that's what I really latched on to during a re, this rewatch. I was just like, man, they have it's a the nice apartment. <laughs> I, Wait, it's got to be earlier than the early 90s because there's post-movie text that references 1992. So this has got a the fictional world that this or the real world this took place in. Maybe it was like high paying sports journalist uh, peak. Yeah, but I don't think it was too much uh, too earlier because the guy Joshua is, you know, not not old. He's probably in his late oh, yeah. 30s. I guess we could. You, yeah, you can look backwards. him up. Let us know. Um, yeah. And so this this film chronicles uh, Josh figuring out that he's a child prodigy, learning to play from two very different masters. Uh, one is played by Lawrence Fishburne, who is just a guy uh, playing in Washington Square Park. Uh, and then a, a seasoned professional uh, played by Ben Kingsley, uh, this kind of like classic, I spend all my time at the chess club uh, training masters. And, and Ben Kingsley is obsessed with Bobby Fischer and the failure or Bobby kind of collapsing. If you don't know about Bobby Fisher, obviously he's a huge child or another chess child prodigy who just went off the deep end, right? He went literally, he went off the grid, went missing after he won a bunch of championships and uh, he would later resurface, but then disappear again. And apparently he really, really hates searching for Bobby Fisher. Bobby Fisher hates a movie. Uh, because I any Fisher, money I would from probably it. also hate the movie. Why would you hate? I mean, it's it's using his name. It's true. It's like avoid being Bobby Fisher. Know your life well enough so you don't become this man who definitely is out there and probably saw this movie in Iceland or some shit. Um, and then uh, Joe Montag- uh, Montagna plays uh, Josh's dad, Fred, the sports writer, and Joan Allen, who. Katie, I think you guys were talking about Joan Allen on on Little Gold Men recently. Yeah, um, what a, what an amazing actress! An right yeah, no no Oscar, uh, but she's phenomenal in this movie as as the mom. And they're all trying to figure out how do you coach this amazing kid? How do you nurture what he has, this gift, and help him blossom into a functioning human? Uh, and and the kid, I really want to hear what Katie thinks. Oh well, you know, that- yeah, I can't, but. This kid. Sorry, guys. Should I hate this kid? Should I hate this kid? No, you shouldn't hate this kid. I, Max Pomerank, who didn't really go into a, after this movie, he didn't really make any other movies. In fact, uh, Max Pomerank became the campaign manager for Anthony Weiner's congressional campaign, and now he works for Airbnb. Hey. Uh, according to my <laughs> little Facebook stalking and shit. Or no, that's amazing. Yeah, so he delivers an amazing performance as Joshua, who. You know, it's not. Uh, I think it'd be really easy to classify Joshua why he his intellect, his reasoning, uh, why he is a prodigy. Uh, other movies would try and go deeper there, but he is presented on the surface. We just get to observe him making choices and observe him reacting uh, and observe him playing the game. And I, I would not make a case that Searching for Bobby Fisher is one of the greatest 
like films of all time or American films, studio movies. Um, but for me, I guess I thought when I was thinking about my future kid or future generations and what I want them to see, it's not necessarily something that I don't like consider searching for Bobby Fisher, one of my, my top films either. It's just something that I would want them to learn. I was, I was racking my brain for like, what is a movie where kids make choices, where kids learn to be independent, where kids learn Mm. to escape their parents' shadow or, uh, can consider how their parents are parenting them. Yes, exactly. Um, and then and then become their own individual. Take all these adults in the world who want them to, who are 100% positive the way they live is the way everyone should live. Um, and then you take all of those elements and then become your own person. And in something so terrifying as, as, as the chess finals, something so brainy, something where you do have a figure like Bobby Fischer who was lost in their own mind. How do you become... How do you avoid that? Or maybe how do you embrace it? How do you weaponize that? How do you become a great individual? Uh, and to do it from a kid's point of view, I think Stephen Zalian just really nails every angle in this movie, uh, every every emotional beat. It's very much studio filmmaking. The, the James Horner score is out of control, manipulative. And I was weeping at, at like every turn of when I was rewatching it recently. Um, but yeah, that's what I really wanted to find and searching for Bobby Fischer well does align with some of the things that I think of the world mainly like being competitive is pretty terrible Um, and I like how it positions chess as art and not sport and by you know because Fred is a sports writer he's like he can say he can get really intense about winning and competition and how that makes you a better man and get out there in the world Josh like you can. You got to fight. You got to push. You got to train. It could be. It could be like that. The movie could treat it like that too. It could be like a sports movie, but about this kid rising to the top, overcoming his 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 beautiful mind. To use uh, the title of another movie. Um, but it and then and then it kind of scolds Fred for thinking that way. Uh, later in the movie, when Josh starts burning out because he's just gone too hard into the chess world. Uh, Joe Mantegna, as Fred says, this it's just a game. You can quit. And no. And Josh said, no, it's not just a game. It's it's not. And I think that's such a beautiful moment about parents on learning about their kids and kids learning about their parents and talking to one another as what they really are, two humans on this planet. Um, and yeah, I just I was really moved watching about watching it again. It made me think about something that my dad told me probably in like 10th grade, probably 10th or 11th grade. Um, it was after a concert, you know, I got really into music and art in high school. I totally straight away from sports. I am sure you cannot believe that I'm a very <laughs> athletic person. <laughs> if you know me in life, of you playing Jean Valjean, I'm, like I'm constantly hitting home runs for fun. Um, no, I, I left the sports world after years of years of, of playing every type of sport. Um, and I became immersed. I was just spending so much time at school with uh, feeder, all of that stuff. And I remember my dad coming up to me after a concert and just saying, like, I get, I, I understand why someone could think that music is a profession or that music is a life that someone would want to just continue doing this for the rest of their life. And he never had before. And everyone who went to, or a lot of people in my life saw my, commitment to this as kind of 
silly. Uh, my, my teacher was a tremendous mentor to me, um, is the reason I would consider film uh, as something I could go to college for. Like that really scared my parents when I started that, talking seriously about going to film school. Like, why would you do that? That's not a career. That's not how you're, we're going to spend so much money to send you to film school. And so you can do what? Um, well, they probably still regret that. So you can do a but, podcast. Yeah, so you can do this. So instead of eating dinner with us, you are talking on the phone. Um, but And he came up to me. It was really emotional. It's just like, I get it. I get why you care this much. And I and it's a beautiful thing to see what art is or what people, what many people see as a hobby, why other people would see it as a life. And I think that Searching for Bobby Fischer does an amazing job talking about that. And it's so sensitive. And like Conrad Hall shot the movie. He was nominated for an Oscar. I, I love the look of this movie. I'm one of those people who did not attend an Ivy League school, but like want to spend as much time in Ivy League old college, old university libraries, like with old wood paneling where rainy light bleeds into the room. There's something, it's probably because of searching for Bobby Fisher. All of this movie takes place in dusty wooden rooms with like bright white light. And it's so beautiful. And yes, the movie does start with Batman, by the way. So anyway, I I love the way that it's shot and I love that it focuses on his perspective so early on. But you mentioned that, you know, the studio produced part of this is largely in the score. If this movie had a different score, I would like it so much more. But the score? Just like, I mean, it, yeah, the, it, it makes some things ham fisted, which they didn't yeah. need to make because they got good enough performances. And I could see not being able to make that decision in hindsight. But if I had to change one thing about this movie, it would, I might just strip out the score and just let it be. I think that would be just as thrilling. Yeah, so David, you believe that this is a is a good movie? Oh yeah. Which I actually I thought about you during it because I was just like, this is gonna this is too Hollywood for you. How why do you like this movie? Yeah, good Hollywood is good Hollywood. You it know? Is. I mean, this is what the problem with Hollywood isn't that it's Hollywood is that it's often bad Hollywood. Uh, you know, I think that a movie like Trump, a movie like Trump, she's Oh my God. <laughs> just coming in every, just to get on track here. A movie uh, like Trump. I, my Twitter feed in the background. What do you think is anyone's talking about? Um, we, uh, we like searching for Bobby Fisher. Uh, I think lends itself very well to a Hollywood telling. I think it, it is especially not, you know, not for nothing that it's aimed at children. It moves in these broad emotional strokes. And I think that it, it doesn't, pander to them but it uh captures it well it captures very well and this is what appealed to me about the movie at that age it, it captures very well what it's like to be uh, an obsessive chess player when you're 10 um not that i was ever <laughs> no one ever confused me for a child prodigy <laughs> but uh you know the child prodigies have to beat up on someone and so i was in those dusty rooms and can attest to the validity of, of how they presented this movie um <laughs> but Project. yeah uh, no, I think uh, I think it's a it's a very good movie. I think I don't remember the score off the top of my head. I, I don't remember it being particularly overbearing, but it was the '90s. It was a Hollywood movie. Um, but I do remember the characters just sort of burned in my brain. The contrast as overbearing as it was between uh, you know Lawrence Fishburne as like the the hot headed street black you know chess master. That is not that is not as like old characterization or failure of, of racial, you know, stereotypes as, as it could be. Do you think, is that what you're implying by? No, but it's, it's very broad. It plays into like familiar tropes and stereotypes. And I mean, those are the, he is a guy, he looks, looks just like everyone who plays chess and watches Square Park. That is an accurate portrayal. 
Well, there's, uh, there's something that they talk about him like being a drug addict that they don't connect the addictions in any way. So it just sort of looks like bad. For that, like, like, all everybody in the true. park has to be drug addicts. But that's that's their lat. Like people roll their eyes at the white people who say that. Yeah, I mean, eventually, but not when they're first presented as like sort of like this right. raucous group of. See, well, this movie's also people. teaching kids about race. Teaching them that race exists, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. That's a that's a first. <laughs> But no, I mean Charlie. He does have a nice relationship with Lawrence Fishburne's character. Um, it is mutually beneficial. Uh, it's yeah. I I, I, um, I do think this is a good movie. I do think that it gets a lot of right about fathers and sons. I remember my father taking me to see it. Um, he was also the same person who took championships, the championships, the lower row, whatever chess tournaments. Um, <laughs> This I, person who made me the chess prodigy I am today. Yeah, I won fourth grade's fourth uh, fourth grade Connecticut State Chess Championship, but like the B team level, like the because chess ratings uh, go up to you know they go up to past sixteen hundred, but I think a thousand. Or there's like a cutoff for for like the A level and the B level, and fulfilling my uh, brand as being the captain of the B team, I I won the uh, lower level. I flew to nationals. I never did very well, but I went to I think two or three different national tournaments where the you know that was a real that was a real shit. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I like this movie. Well, to to kind of wrap up here, I would just say one, yeah, it's a great movie about fathers and sons, but it's also a great movie about mothers. Uh, I really do think Joan Allen watching it again is just kind of doing a next level. It's it's just so true to the frustration I imagine that parenting can be. Uh, I do think kids should see movies about parents um, to understand what they go through and the difficulty, the, you know, the unknowing, what, how there's no handbook. No one's experience could be exactly the same with a child and a child should be aware of that too, on some level. Um, but yeah, I guess for me, the, the driving force of searching for Bobby Fisher is about not stuffing my own ideas down a kid's throat, you know, not showing them the films that I love and expecting them to love it. Uh, Pat Oswalt just did a stand-up special on Netflix where he has a great bit about showing his daughter Star Wars for the first time. Star Wars. He loves it. This is the biggest movie on in his life to love Star Wars. So much of his mental space is taken up by Star Wars mythology. Can't wait to show his daughter. She doesn't care for it <laughs> at all. And, and he didn't break him up. He just didn't, like, he didn't realize that, that would happen. And, and he had to be okay with that, right? We can't force kids to be like us, be their own people. Um, and we, but we do have to talk to them, uh, talk to them about uh, how they feel about art. And the difference between, I, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate because I think that what you just said is all very healthy. But what is the difference between saying, is there a discernible difference between art and politics and not even politics, but just like basic information, like the difference between saying, between saying, uh, you know, I think Star Wars is a good movie, but if you don't, that's fine between and that, and then saying to your kid, uh, you know, being gay is not wrong, for example, and not being tolerant of a kid who says, well, actually I do think being gay is wrong. Well, it's more like the difference between, I don't know if this is accurate, but it seems like the difference between pragmatism and spirituality or philosophy, like here's how I lived, so here's how you should live, not necessarily. How do you think? It's a, we, we, I think culture in general, and I draw a lot of this conclusion from just going to public high school and watching people uh, chew on information and never talk to people and never – people don't ask questions. Uh, and people don't have conversations where they explore questions about – 
how other people think, how other people might answer the same questions. People don't ask if you watch a movie or you listen to a, a piece of music. No one says, like, why is this good and gets your opinion about it uh, because we're all different. And people just we accept certain rules about that, that. And that's what happens to Frank in this movie, that like his sports worldview uh, uh, drive a cliff because he will never ask a question. He'll just assume that he's the parent and he's in charge and that his kid can't make a decision for himself because he's only like, what, eight years old. I don't know. There's a lot going on in this movie. And I think for me, I would want to show a kid that so that they feel like they could ask me a question or they could. So ask will you learn questions. the lesson? And if your kid doesn't like searching for Robbie Fisher, you'll accept it and not say, no, <laughs> it's a great movie. You need to like it. Nope. Going to throw him out a window if they say that. <laughs> right out the window. Michael Jackson style. Bye-bye. He didn't throw that kid out the window. He just dangled. dangled. No. Okay. Factual correction. Not Michael Jackson style. Hello. 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 I took what may be a more obvious tact for this because uh, a movie that I think in as succinctly as possible, as succinctly as any movie I've ever seen has, distills my overall worldview and, and crystallizes it into this, this real thing that it's sort of like leaving uh, one's will on film. I, I think of it as like if I, if I died... And I wanted a child of mine who was too young to really know me when, they, when I was alive to understand, if not entirely internalize and, and mimic, but just understand what my overall sort of take on the world was. This is the movie that I would leave for them to watch. Uh, and that viewers of the longtime listeners, rather, of the show uh, will have heard all of us talk about this movie the recent past, and it is Don Hertzfeldt's World of Tomorrow, which is now screening on Netflix. So uh, no excuse. It's less than 17 minutes long. My child, who I presume will have my attention span, uh, will appreciate that. <laughs> and your Netflix password. And my Netflix yeah. password, which I bequeath to them. Yes, um, that's included in all of our wills. Yeah. So, so one of the knocks against World of Tomorrow is that it Subtlety is not really what it's all about. I mean, I think in, in a lot of short films, uh, that's that's something sort of endemic to the form. Um, but it, it it's very much wears its heart on its sleeve. It speaks in dialogue the uh, philosophy that Don Hertzfeld that I believe he shares. I mean, there's not, of course, you know, we, we've talked on the show before about how film characters are not always a reflection of the people who are creating them. I think in this particular case, from what I know of Don Hertzfeld, it's fair to say that he uh, is very earnest in how he gives voice to these particular characters. For those of you who have not seen World of Tomorrow, it is about uh, an adorable four-year-old girl named Emily, henceforth referred to as Emily Prime, who is visited by a third-generation adult clone of herself who travels in time from the future when Earth is less than 70, 70 days away from destruction uh, because an asteroid is going to collide into it. And 
we learn over the course of the 17 minutes of the movie that this Emily clone who is, uh, is sort of inbred from herself and has some mental deterioration as a result of this process uh, is on a particular mission. She wants a memory that she has forgotten, but that this young four-year-old girl has freshly lived. And so she wants to pluck it out of her, but before she can do so mostly for our benefit, but also to help guide her, her root self, uh, through her life imparts with her the wisdom that she has learned from the world of tomorrow, from the future. Uh, and while most of that takes the shape of just sort of a very tragicomic tour of this absurdist, but maybe not so absurdist vision of tomorrow, like uh, that includes um, people uploading their consciousnesses into cubes and there are uh, this brainless body named David who is the visit in a museum and there are robots. Emily, the clone of Emily continues falling in love with inanimate objects. Uh, she falls in love with an alien. Um, there's all sorts of, there's this thing called the outer net, which is really sort of the mechanism by which the story is told. There's also this, this, this stuff. Um, and it gets bleaker and bleaker as it goes along, but there's Emily, this four year old girl is such a reservoir of optimism. I mean, she, she is listening to all this stuff, but she is too young to really appreciate it. She is just sort of happy to be alive. Um, and then really the main takeaway from the movie for me and, and you know, what uh, I found so true about it, um, bless you, was, <laughs> Thank you. was uh, you know, they, she says, she says, I, she says at the end of the film, um, her big, the, the end of her big presentation, essentially to her, younger self is she says uh, do not lose time on daily trivialities do not dwell on petty detail for all these things melt away and drift apart within the obscure traffic of time live well and live broadly you are alive and living now now is the envy of all the dead i'm reading that off of the tattoo on my forehead uh (laughs) reflection (laughs) on my computer screen um i've seen this movie so many times but uh, I and, and of course, the response, OK, <laughs> it's completely lost on her. Uh, and that for me is the heart of this movie, that even with the right worldview, the, the right idea that life is terrible and tragic, but there's still beautiful things in it and we have to do our best to appreciate them. We can't help, despite our best intentions, to have a lot of this stuff lost on us. It is impossible. And I think about this a lot in the context of sort of inevitably what's happened in my life the last year with the loss of my father. And, you know, you, whenever I think you love, lose someone who's close to you, you think a lot about how you may have taken the relationship for granted and, and the things that you would say and all those various cliches. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. We see so many movies about appreciating life, about stopping to smell the flowers, about Disney dads who need to slow down and, and about how like, Oh, like the more, the lesson of so many movies is, is like, that's how I learned how to not take X or Y or this person or that thing for granted. And I think this movie calls bullshit on a lot of them. And as moving as a lot of those movies can be, I think that it's very healthy for us to call bullshit on that because the truth is that it is human nature to take these things for granted. You can wake up every day and say, I'm going to call my mother and I love her and I'm going to tell her that. Um, and we're going to spend all, you know, my wife and I are going to spend all day looking into each other's eyes. Uh, and I'm going to spend every waking second with my newborn child. It is simply not in our nature and the way that the world works to be able to focus all of your attention on that, even to preserve those moments in a meaningful way. We have our memories. We have our ability to uh, visit these things as our minds can reconstruct them. But we cannot 
keep them in the way that the characters can in World of Tomorrow, where the art of their time is uh, memories that are extracted from the dead and, and hung in galleries uh, without context, these sort of blips of images and, and uh, of sights and sounds. And we, we can't do that. I mean, there's simply no way. Every time you lose someone, uh, you will find yourself kicking yourself for not having done this or wire or not having told them you love them, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, and I think this is a movie that finds a real beauty in that. I think, uh, you know, Emily, the, the clone Emily, says at one point that she's proud of her sadness because it makes her feel more alive. And I think that you can distill a very emo-like you know, hot topic sentiment from that where it's like, oh, like life, yeah, man. Like it's, it's uh, it, as if as if this doom and gloom attitude is what gives you your vitality. And I do not think that that is what Don Herzfeld is getting at. I think he's just saying that that hole in our hearts, that that lack that we feel is a big part of what makes us who we are. It's as true a expression of our love for we ha- that we have for these people um, that may no longer be with us or um, may still be with us. Maybe it's just somebody that you miss because a business trip. I don't know. But, you know, I think that there is a really bittersweet beauty in, in that uh, sense of absence. And I think the movie gets that very well. Uh, it's also hilarious and in a very sardonic sort of uh, gallowsy way, which I relate to strongly and again if i'm thinking about this is like the movie that my child watches when i'm not there so that they can better appreciate my sense of i think this movie speaks really fluently to that um when she's talking about all the dead bodies who are <laughs> all the kids love dead bodies you know, oh no but the, yep. the dead bodies are being zapped into space by discount <laughs> uh i think that that I, I laugh every time that i Watch it. I think so much. Uh, we I mentioned earlier in the show, and that I think a lot of the crux of this episode is, is about uh, the movies that sort of re- reflect our worldviews. And if that is our ultimate metric of quality, I struggle with this because I hope that's not the case. I hope I can see a movie that that I don't just try to uh, fit a round hole to a square peg and, and force it to you know to to see it as I did going into the movie, or that I don't really respond to movies just because they reinforce what I already know. I don't want to be the choir that's preached to. The idea of art should be to uh, galvanize what you think, sure, but also to expand what that is. And I think it's very difficult for us to, um, especially as you get older and your view of the world sort of calcifies, to have your mind changed about something. And it doesn't have to be a particular issue. I just mean, it's like just these broader yeah. abstract topics. Uh, but then I see a movie like World of Tomorrow, which articulates in ways that I had been searching for so many of the things that I think, so many of the, and gives vi- images to the way that I see the world. And I'm grateful for its existence oh. only because I, people can watch it and, and, know that like you know if i if i want to say like this is important to me i can show it to them and they, they will better understand me through it let me ask you this do you think that world of tomorrow benefits from you having lived a, a large chunk of life that uh it's it's reflecting on past that all, all of its audiences have lived yeah. that you could actually be too young to see this oh movie. absolutely i mean the whole point of the, the, the big joke of the movie is that emily is showing right. things that Adults can never imagine these. She learns about exactly when the world is going to end, when she's going to die. 
uh, all these things that are going to happen in the future. And it is completely lost on her, which is, of course. Although, do you think does that so does that speak actually to this uh, hypothetical parenting situation that we're kind of introducing here to that that uh, older people speaking to younger people? Uh, if you had sh- if you show this movie to a young person, will they just be Emily? Well, that's fine if they are. I hope they watch it more than once. You know, they can, uh, again, in a scenario where I am not there, they can watch it at first, like, like, oh, you know, that's the, like the way that Emily reacts to the vision, the, her own memory that's extrapolated from her head when it's just like a, a vision of her and mom walking. She's like, that's me and mommy. That's me and mommy walking. I mean, that like root level of, of sensation is what's there in this really grim scenario for this child, this hypothetical child to be watching and be like, oh, you know, that's, this is the, it's sort of another version of home videos. Like, oh, there's dad. This is what he sort of, his ethos distilled into. And I can appreciate that. They'll have a very different relationship with it when, when older. Um, and maybe they'll feel some connection. I don't know. Hopefully none of this ever comes to fruition, but uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that, Yes, it's a lot of it would be a lot. You bring your own sadness to it. I mean, every, you bring your own experience. Uh, I think that um, I really fell in love with this movie before my my dad got sick and all that stuff happened. But I think that uh, I returned to it many times over that year. I, I think I learned, I'm remembering the chronology right, I, I, that my dad was sick like a month after first watching World of Tomorrow. Um, and I, I definitely spent a lot of time that year watching it. Uh, and I think that it helped sort of articulate that for me, what I was saying earlier about just, you know, but there's no way around kicking yourself, but there's also, um, and there are always, it, it shouldn't be just sort of this get out of jail free card where you're like, well, you know, I did what I could, <laughs> you know, and then and even if you didn't, uh, we all could take these lessons and, and be better sons and brothers and husbands and wives and daughters and mothers and whatever to the people that we love. But I think that uh, it definitely helped realize the extent of what I could have done, the extent of what it's in my power to do while he was still alive or with the people that I, that are still alive. Um, And so, yeah, I think it was helpful in that, in that respect, but this is definitely a case where it's just, this is like a mirror um, and does not really challenge me in any way in that sense. The part of this that gets me that I, I thought of when I first watched it is the idea of the world that you're handing to your children and like what kind of world are you bringing them into, which I think is something all of us think about at some point, just because horrible things happen. And we, you know, for me, maybe it's more pressing than otherwise. But, uh, you know, the idea of if you could show your kid what the world is going to be like, would you do it? And then if like Emily, they wouldn't process it anyway. And if it's better just to kind of live and have moments like me and mommy walking while you can and then if everything goes to shit, you've at least had what you could. I mean, it's such like a dark way to think about parenthood that I don't think about most of the time, but World of Tomorrow brings that up for me. Like, if uh, I'm bringing a kid into a world where corpses will be shot in space. Well, I mean, this movie extrapolates questions I'm sure you'll ask yourself, you know, as you you raise this child. I was just at a baby shower uh, talking to some people who were about to have some babies, and... um, I keep asking people this question. I'm such an asshole, but I, I was like, <laughs> why, when will you give, maybe we were all talking about this. When will you give a kid a cell phone? Oh, I think, I know we, I think we've talked about this, maybe not on the air. Yeah. I'm not sure if we, we, we had a similar mini segment at some point that was like this, but when would you give a kid a cell phone knowing what you know about how technology 
changes people or at least maybe the feelings that you felt uh how it's changed your attention or how it's changed what memories are how it changes does it make that does your phone make things more ephemeral um you how you are looking into the future in a way your child can't so when how how do you impact them knowing that knowing the world that you're about to propel them into and i guess i would distill that into when would you give them a cell phone i kind of want to know your answer too so oh god feel, my feel answer? Free to answer feel free to answer yeah no, I mean, by you know, what, it'll be at least ten years. So, like, who knows what cell phones will be like by then? Yeah, they'll be the her uh, ear devices. Yeah, I know you gotta you gotta do some stuff in context. But I like I like doing World of Tomorrow and as like you talking to your child, basically like telling it it's gonna die. There's something about that that's both existentially frightening and exciting at the exact same time. Uh- but well, you, you want know, to make an impact. I wouldn't do it to my you child. Want, like, you don't want to be clone Emily, right? Yeah. So what I was going to say to Katie's point about she was talking about her own child was that um, so much of this movie for me is also not just about having these experiences, but also about the act of remembering about how uh, so much of what it is that we value about relationships and that we value about a time on Earth really uh, cannot happen in the present moment. It is uh, all has to be sort of mediated and filtered by memory. And so you do these things. I think, you know, you take take walks with your kid because you take walks with your kid. And this is a nice thing to do. But I think that is trying to sort of have that moment doesn't work. I think it's just sort of like you, you have these moments and then in the future sort of realize their value or find or rediscover their value or define it for yourself. Um, and I think the movie does a really good job of articulating that um, and how the, the discrepancy between that and being able to sort of plan this out and, and live in the moment. Cause I think that uh, it's just what I was saying earlier that you can't, you can't really design these things. You can't choose the memories that are valuable to you. Um, we don't know why third generation clone Emily so covets this memory of her younger self walking with her mother. Um, but does, does the, is does, does the sci-fi element play a, a point here i mean i'm like laboring belaboring this point you can't you can't choose the memories maybe but you can choose the world around you well uh, you can change your course that the memory of the walking is the only i mean it's if it's a self-closing loop the reason she can't remember it is because she takes it oh right yeah it's uh, and the movie has a lot of fun with the headache of time travel and how emily prime is sort of remembering things through like it's very confusing it's it's very a little bit of a mobius strip well i think that's what makes the ultimate statement that much more powerful is because she's like because this is what i remember me saying to me i right. don't know its true origin yes. it's like that's because it's the truth yeah and but yeah it's also um there is a bit of that feedback loop that patches was talking about in his segment about uh shaping people in this case shaping herself uh that not knowing where this one bit of advice originated if it was in her or if it was you know where in this crazy game of telephone that they are um and i think that that is poignant in its own right uh but um yeah i think uh uh this is a movie that i would want to show just not only because any i don't know uh, many times maybe once a year on their birthday (laughs) oh my god uh what a present uh, don't show them on their birthday (laughs) Uh, no, that's like waking them up once a year by just slapping them in the Being face. Like, Here's harsh reality. Your parents, I will die your parents someday. Never did that? 
Uh, <laughs> let me let me have you confront my mortality. Well, it's funny because like my I, I only want to make this segment so dark, but my niece is three and she grew up knowing my father, her grandfather, and uh, was almost three when he died, and is learning the concept of death through this, and is like. You know, her memories of him will fade and she will only really think that she knows him as far as like through these pictures, but, uh, and video that we might have. But I think that there, um, there has been a lot. Of, I don't know. I, I, I've been, it's been interesting for me to see her concept of death sort of evolve. And, um, I don't know. I don't know really where I'm going with that, but I don't necessarily think that it's hard to introduce I, these ideas to kids at a young age. The technological aspect of World of Tomorrow is what makes is, is so fascinating to me about you know she'll have she'll have pictures of him but will people of the future have pictures of the moments they only kind of remember and how do you have to treasure that and how do you how do you avoid uh, everything in your life being ephemeral or think about how many more photos and videos our kids will have of moments yeah. in their life that they don't actually remember than we did yeah and maybe if we don't form these memories because we are constantly preserving them i mean this is sort of an age old conversation where people are like hey man go outside turn off your phones right. don't take a photo at the concert i mean i know that don hurtsville happens to hate that uh the idea that everyone is constantly staring into their devices uh and okay good so is... my crazy phone question of, to your kids is not that crazy <laughs> no I, when I, talking this about is, this film this is reflected in the movie um i don't think he's like a zealot about it but i think that a sort of healthy look up and preserve the memories that you don't know are going to be valuable to you ideas in play at what age do you give your kid a phone i don't know when my kid's 10 what's a phone even going to be this is what i like, said no, I, I, I don't know well i mean um, you can assume that it does something similar to what it does now it unlocks the entire world at your fingertips yeah. and you allow it allows you to communicate with everyone and everything instantaneously so uh when do you give them that the people i was talking to their answer was whenever the their friends get one I think that's kind of – I guess that's smart. It's a social thing, right? If you will be ostracized if you don't have a phone. Yeah, because your kid will have access to your phone. Like for the you know access to the whole world, like they can text their grandparents for you know whatever age. Right. Well, now you see kids with iPads at every restaurant, right? That's that's the new thing. So Yeah. These are questions that I'm excited Katie has to answer first. Yes, me and exactly. We can <laughs> sort of learn from her mistakes. Thanks for taking one for the team. I'm excited not to answer them for a while and just focus on keeping this kid alive for a little while. Yeah, although I will say that my last, just to close out my segment, that my niece, now three and a half, still, she goes to school, every kid in her class knows every word of Frozen. The only movie she's ever seen, My Neighbor Totoro, she has no idea what the hell Frozen is. Um, she knows that it's something her friends see, but she has no jealousy. She has her own thing. And if I have my way, she will go to her grave never having seen Frozen. Or at least I'll go to my grave without her having seen Frozen, which will <laughs> yeah. be good enough. Meanwhile, I took my unborn child to see Warcraft, so your your brother's doing better than me. Gul'dan. Gul'dan Baltus. Everybody was kung fu fighting. So, uh, my move, it, I mean, here's the thing. 
I don't really plan on having children, but to confirm every parent's worst nightmare, I definitely plan on influencing all the children that are put in contact with me. Including the hypothetical <laughs> so, sorry, ones we guys. talked about on this show. Oh, yeah. Crazy Uncle and Dave. Ones. Yep, current ones. I'm like, I got, I got a bit pushing babies, teaching them that life's real uh, for a few when months When you say now, push babies, been... do you mean physically push them <laughs> down? Like yeah, on, I physically like push them over. Oh, I see. Well, no, if they push me, I push them back. They just learn about consequences. <laughs> I have one baby that's trying to teach me baby sign language that is adorable, and I pushed her, and she was sort of not into it, but the mom was cool with it because she Is she a baby geniuses to super baby? Maybe. She, so she knows, like, the sign for milk in baby sign oh. language, and so she, like, took milk out of her bottle and then, like, touched it and then touched it to my face and then kept signing milk, <laughs> like, so I would know what the milk Wait, was. Wait, where are you seeing all of these babies? <laughs> My friends have babies. Okay. They let me close to the babies. Not at first, but now they're getting more. Now you, that you've learned their language. The this feels like our zoo yeah. conversation. All yeah, right. I'm, th- I'm thinking of Amy in Congo. Amy love milk. It's a, it's a lot like that. Although what I'm really worried about is when she starts understanding words. I'm not so much worried about like cuss words and stuff like that, but I'm worried that the way I talk to my friends around their children involves too much dry sarcasm. Mm just by like years of knowing them and so it's like it's funny to body shame the baby when she doesn't understand what's going on (laughs) it's less funny to body shame the baby when she understands what the words mean so you know i'm gonna have to work on that but in terms of influencing i'm trying not to pick something that's from my own childhood because i think that you know people are going to pick and choose through nostalgia instead i'm going to pick something that came out when i was in an adult's age you were a man child picking I was a man-child, and that's sort of what I like about this movie, which is Kung Fu Panda, which tells the story of Jack Black's Poe, who is living outside a place where the Furious Five Kung Fu Masters are studying, and they're about to pick a dragon warrior, and he's a super fan, and accidentally, or through fate, uh, gets appointed the dragon warrior just as a horrible... uh, villain that has backstory with the master escapes it's a basic kung fu plot uh with jack black doing fun panda voice over it but in terms of how animated movies are made um especially around the time period it was like pixar or nothing uh we still had you know horrible you know monsters versus aliens to live through by far the animated movie was not like an art that it's slowly you know i think uh, the rising tide is raising all ships in terms of animated Before David complained, there was at least time... for American Studios, there was still Miyazaki. Oh, yeah, true. Uh, I'm speaking specifically for DreamWorks, who made this movie, who was basically just making Shrek movies that were full of like pop culture references and horrible textures on badly designed characters, uh, to suddenly, you know, make the leap to program better fur and to, you know, pick a genre instead of just, like, goofy comedy sketch after goofy comedy sketch, uh, I guess they were sort of pairing the fantasy genre in the first Shrek, but that slowly went away. Um, There's so much I like about Kung Fu Panda because it uh, is talking so much about, I mean, the spoiler alert, but the the point of the movie is there is no, like, secret that makes Poe the dragon warrior that gives him unlimitless power. The secret is just that there is no secret sauce. And, uh, you know, well, you the, are is, yourself. Well, there's secret sauce. Hard work, determination, training. Well, that's the thing, is that what I like about Poe as a character is he's essentially a super fan. And his enthusiasm uh, to, like, not let down his heroes 
uh, is what drives him sort of to become the hero that they need him to be. So it's all like, it's basically through like pure fandom. So for somebody that like grew up wanting to like write movies and comic books and stuff because I was ingesting those things, I really like the idea that, you know, you might not be the perfect, uh, you know, gender, sex, race, species, body shape, free appetite. But if you have, like, that purity of vision and you have, like, a pure heart, you can sort of go through it. There doesn't have to be a secret sauce or... Uh, it was something that I... Actually, I don't think I learned until after I got out of screenwriting school when I was like, okay, where's my job? And people are like, what? No, that's not <laughs> how it works. And I was like, oh, god damn it. There was no secret sauce. <laughs> and uh, I really like that that's how it delivers this message is through this very specifically, I think, beautifully animated uh, movie that knows what, um, I guess, its technical perks are. It knows that it has certain fighting styles with certain animals and it has to anthropomorphize them in that way. But it structures all of its action sequences so that it's slowly unveiling the great things it can do. So the first time you see the Furious, or the first time the Furious Five fight in the movie, uh, Poe's like stuck behind a wall and he doesn't see it. So by the time we see kung fu it's when the uh, the threat villain is breaking out and so it makes it like triply as awesome because we haven't actually seen any of this animal kung fu yet and then when we finally see the five fight it's on this huge bridge scene where it's the master of kung fu that we've seen versus these five people that have been built up by poe talking about them and then finally in the final showdown is really the first time that we see how poe uses his like panda mass to be an awesome dragon warrior and so it's really good about the economy of storytelling, of just laying out a thing and hitting each of those beats faithfully and getting out and allowing the visual storytelling to follow that pact and like sort of pace the movie. And so in terms of modern animated entertainment, like everybody loves, you know, The Little Mermaid and Aladdin because we grew up around that time. But in terms of the new crop, you know, outside of the Pixar, th- Pixar things, I'm sure are great. But like this was this was pre Brave, so already <laughs> Pixar is dipping in quality in my the Brave mind. Brave was your Panda your second out. favorite of these animated movies, right? Yes. Oh my this god! One has a better. What bear. if I'd pick Brave? What if I'd pick Brave, Dave? What if you'd pick Brave? I would have asked you if you had just picked the scene where you know the mom and daughter were having a miscommunication and should have talked things out, <laughs> or. If you just fantasized about being a bear Maybe. sometimes. I know it's a, it's a majestic it creature, sounds, a bear in you know, New York. So that sounds like a movie in its own, right? Uh, Brave I too. would rather be a bear and live in the woods than do my job. So Wow. Yeah, you wouldn't, and you, you could for a brief yeah. moment. No, no, I would definitely want to be polar bear specifically. Dave, I have a question for you. I mean, when we talk about like why we want quality children's entertainment, is this what we're talking about, like, not only that it's a movie that has, like, you know, valuable lessons for a kid to learn, but it's like, here's what a good story is. Here's why you don't have to settle for this crappy thing that's on Nickelodeon right now. Like, is this how you teach kids <laughs> You mean the Kung Fu Panda television show that is currently on Nickelodeon? I'm sorry. Oh, I have no idea what's currently yeah, on Yeah, no, there is. There's a spinoff. I mean, for you I mean, especially, it probably... it's important for, uh, you know, a kid in your life to know what the value, like, what good storytelling is, because you're so invested in storytelling. Yeah, I think overall, yes. Um, I think mostly this is something you could show them a little bit younger that's just, it just works well. So it's like they won't, there'll be a brief period in their lives where they don't know what a slow moment in a movie is, uh, which I could vaguely remember because I know I sat through uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory many more times because that movie is not super interesting all the way through. 
but like something like that and i also like specifically the kung fu or like shogun narrative being uh sort of deorientalized because i found it through like old movies that had some really offensive shit in it and now i could pass on that story trope through something that's done with animals and therefore feels like racially sensitive and then it also has a ton of different animation styles there's a bunch of things in this movie working in concert that I think you could introduce people to really young, but they could continue to find layers to appreciate it once they realize what its source material is. It's like giving them a good book. You know, they start uh, finding the uh, influences later on, but I think it's entertaining enough to be a meal for like a younger child. And I think it's also close enough uh, in terms of what modern like CG animation is to not turn them off as looking like old or antique or whatever kids are going to dislike because I've run across a lot of toddlers who only like like these CGI Netflix shows because like that's what they were like raised on because their parents could like put it on loop and like it's been weird talking to them about they have a different like Bugs Bunny has always existed in three dimensions for them (laughs) and that sort of like blows my mind to someone who likes cartoons and thinks about how kids think about cartoons so I think Kung Fu Panda will be something like a bridge that like even the first Toy Story kind of looks sort of like mm. plastic and not a good way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I dig it. And plus, it, the second movie's good, and I haven't seen the third one yet. The second movie's planning amazing, to. too. I think it's really good. It's got a good energy, Yeah, too. the second movie has like so many different animation yeah. styles and also it's a has better like, action movie uh, efficiency sure. of plot. Oh, yeah. I just don't think it has as good of a moral well, for everybody. I was thinking about what you're saying um, in terms of how this movie relates to you getting out of college and expecting a job on, on solo. <laughs> I mean, not only is Poe's arc important for kids who are, you know, normal, for lack of a better word, I suppose, I, you know, that they're just going to be okay. Maybe they could be heroes too. They're not special in like Harry Potter type way. Um, there's that. But then, of course, you have people who are really accomplished, you know, like the the main masters, the Furious Five, are so good at what they do, and they look down at Poe. Like, there will be kids in that position, clearly, the very athletic ones, the super smart ones, um, and, and it would be easy to look down at them or become privileged in some way. Um, and I thought this during uh, Search for Bobby Fischer, but I think of it even more now with Kung Fu Panda, the importance of learning failure uh, especially, you know, being a millennial, I feel like you don't fail. You you cannot fail. You have to keep climbing and climbing and be the best person you possibly can be. The best, the best, and the best never fail. Um, and if you fail, you're probably doomed. Like, you're not going to accomplish your goals or something, and you would feel intense panic about a uh, big big failure. Uh, but this, fail- this, this franchise is covered at failure, right? They're constantly missing the mark, uh, assuming their own strength, um, feeling incompetent or feeling weak, uh, that they can't accomplish anything, and actually seeing life blow up in their faces. Uh, you know, Poe in the in the first movie is just he's a complete failure time and time again. Everyone keeps telling him, but then then the Furious Five fail. They go and attack the main villain, um, and they pull out all the stops, and they can't do it. And all of them walk back to their temple, heads down. Just feeling like this is it. We should all just hang up our hats and go home. Um, but no, they all have to like work together and accomplish this. And I just think failure is something, I don't know. We don't see it in kids' movies a lot. We see mm-hmm. it kind of watered down. 
kids movies. I put that in quotes. I don't like saying that. Uh, but <laughs> yes, yeah. that you that people are likely to show their children. Yes, exactly. That just I don't know. We don't get taught the the importance of failure very often. We get the importance of trying hard. That's definitely stuffed down our throats and like working and becoming better. But we don't learn how failure doesn't need to sink our ships. Uh, my kids won't have to learn about failure. <laughs> <laughs> They'll learn about it from your kids. Boom. Wow. wow. My kid is now uh, going to beat your kid up. Uh, my kids will be Jewish. <laughs> I think, uh, they'll be uh, stuck well, thinking not. about they'll... existential dread after marathoning World of Tomorrow. Yeah, they'll, they'll be built to expect failure based on what they expect the future to be. <laughs> oh, man. I... I... Okay, I'm gonna try to pick an age since that's what I'm uh, been been tasked with. So you've with. been making the rest of us so too. I'm, yeah, that's right. So I'm going to say this one is going to hit squarely between five and six, hmm. and you give them a cell phone <laughs> at twelve. <laughs> okay. Twelve. Just because, yeah, no. Even if their friends get it first, like I had to, I I had to live through all what of my friends getting pagers, and my parents were like. Pagers are for drug dealers and all your friends uh, had pagers. Doctors. Wow. Well, yeah, pre-cell phones. Everybody had pagers because they're like, then you know, the parents can page them, and you go to a you go to a payphone. And then even when cell phones came, my parents like restricted me to that. They're like, well, if I don't know where you are, why would you be there? And that you know became a whole argument. So I say, yeah, twelve. They're probably gonna like want it earlier, but make them build some character, and they're gonna hate you anyway in your <laughs> teens. So just lean into it. <laughs> oh. Well, that does it for our uh, fifth quarter quell of Fighting in the War Room. I don't know how many we've done over the uh, two shows, but uh, man, guys. So many. I know. So many episodes. We're getting old. So We're having kids. Milestones. Are you going to make your child listen to all of these? <laughs> this is my moral tomorrow. This is what I will leave to my child when, when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Locked in the vault. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a baby while we were recording this, so success. That's okay. true. Yeah. Congratula- yeah. Well, no, first uh, off, I, congratulations I because you have had the baby probably by now. Maybe. We don't know. It could be. You're, you might be in labor at this very second. You, you just never know. But at some point, presumably, I will have had a healthy child. So uh, congratulate me then. Uh, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. if you listen to this regular show, you know where to find us. And hopefully this wasn't your first episode. But, you know, otherwise, uh, we, I don't know. What, where are you guys online? I am Matt Patches, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, I'm on Twitter at David Dave Gonzalez, I'm on Twitter at DA78. I'm Katie Rich. I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with uh, regular episodes, with or without me, who knows, next week. <laughs>